0: Genre-rama, the podcast for fiction writers, it's Genre-rama, romance, monsters, quests and fighters, it's Genre-rama.
1: Welcome to Genre-rama, a podcast for people who write about monsters, romance, time travel, good old-fashioned chases and escapes, and more. I'm your host, romance and mystery author Helen Cox. If you want to get started on your next story straight after this episode, check out the free Creative Writing Starter Library in the show notes. Now, here's the show. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Genre Rama. This episode is a continuation of our discussion about how to write superheroes. And I'll be chatting with comic book script writer and award winning filmmaker, James Peaty, about lessons learned from the Superman movie made in 1978. When developing our craft, there are often two major prongs consuming straightforward non fiction craft advice from those further along the journey than us and deconstructing the fiction we consume to understand what makes it great or fall flat respectively. As this is a positive show, we'll be deconstructing films we consider classics in each of the genres we discuss. And we will be considering how we can apply the same writing principles present in these models to our own work. Before we dive into the interview then, we're just going to hear a word from our fake sponsor. The service you're going to hear about is hashtag not a real product. Anyone who tries to sell you this service is an agent of evil and not to be trusted.
0: Are you a supervillain searching for terrorizing real estate? Do you want to avoid the fortress in a mountain cliche? Fear not. Villas for Villains is here to rescue you from unimaginative accommodation. Book an appointment to view palatial properties on the dark side of the moon, in the cleft of a giant's foot, or even on the wrong side of midnight. Yes. With our new temporal technology, you can purchase a home in time rather than space, making it doubly difficult for those wholesome heroes to track you down and foil your plan for world domination. Visit Villas for Villains today.
1: Hi, James. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: That's all right, Helen. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, not too bad. I'm, I'm enjoying my time in the TARDIS. I'm
1: very impressed with this. This is a
0: brand. I've got, it's disappeared. I've got a Dalek mug as well. So.
1: <laughs> Definitely a theme going on here. I love I it. I think so, yeah. <laughs> so, for those of you listening on audio, James is, uh, Got a background of the TARDIS and a TARDIS mug. which uh, was very impressive. So we're going to be talking today about lessons, writing lessons learned from the mm. Superman movie from 1978. And I know you've written for uh, a lot of different uh, comic books and with a lot of different characters. So it'd be great to get your insight uh, mm. on the different elements of this story and how they're used. Because it was, to my, the best of my knowledge, it was the first superhero movie. Is that correct? Do you think? I think it was.
0: Well, there was one, a Batman. There was a Batman movie in the sixties.
1: Oh, a Batman movie before that. So it was Batman, so it that was one based on the th- first rather than the first. Okay, but so that
0: was a film based on the TV show. So this, okay, this probably right. the first okay. pure film. Yes,
1: first pure film from Hollywood. Maybe. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Great. Um, so the first thing I'd like to talk about really is how the writers in this movie make the most of setting.
0: Ooh setting well what do we mean by that i think um it's it's this well it's not a film with a set and it's it's kind of almost through i don't know when when if you if you thought about this when you watched it again it's like three films together
1: definitely
0: there's definitely sort of there's an identity to the three distinct parts Mm -hmm. um the stuff on krypton the stuff in smallville and the stuff in metropolis and they're very very distinctly different um how do they use the settings well i think they kind of make them very um they commit to them i think that's the the crucial thing um the opening the first line of the film i've got it written down here i should it, should be able to remember it but actually i've written it down just in case this is no fantasy no careless product of wild imagination i mean and that's kind of although technically that's not the first line of the movie the first line of the movie is it begins with that
1: Little
0: Metropolis bit. Well, it begins, well, it's a little Metropolis bit, but it, it sort of goes from a mo- an old-style movie theatre, doesn't it, and the curtain's mm-hmm. open, to a comic book. Yeah. To a kind of sort of depiction of the daily planet Metropolis in the 1930s, late no, 1938, obviously, which is the year Action Comics number one was published. Um, so I think that there's an element of, of them setting up the tone i think that's the thing i would say more than than setting and i think this is one of the biggest sort of things from the film is the tone that they set right from the start you're kind of going into a world that's already sort of defined in some respects and someone, i think because of the film thing the comic thing it's a world that we've already experienced because superman was a comic book but superman was also a movie serial very early on i think 1940 41 they did the first live action very cheap superman and Superman was then a TV show, so that so it's not. While it is the first one, there's a kind of already a sort of a sort of textual sort of thing going on with the whole Superman thing by the time you get to 1978. I mean, 78, he's 40 years old as a character, yeah. so he's not unknown. He's well known. It's the reason the film was made. Um, but I think it's very really interesting that when you finally get past that kind of little opening narration that the first line of the film is that this is no fantasy. And it's interesting. It's done in a very kind of, even though that's all very big, I think it's very stripped down. I don't know what you you think when you look at it. It's very simple. It's very stark blacks and whites. And you've got all these big thesps, you know, obviously Marlon Brando, but not just Marlon Brando. You've got Terence Stamp, you've got Trevor Howard. You've got all these other kind of famous film actors of another generation from the past, actually. Kind of root in the film, so I think. Yeah, you're the, the right about it being
1: is... stripped back in on Krypton. I think to me, it all, it's not the same as, but it's akin to the um, black and white transformation into Oz. Um, in you know, in terms of that, it's so starkly contrasted in on Krypton, and then when we go to Earth, we're bursting into this color because everything's very colorful. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I feel like it's a complete um, sort of almost through the looking glass transformation.
0: It's kind of a about it's interesting isn't it because this was i think where they land it's like the reverse of the Wizard of Oz, because where they land is in a very bucolic kind of countryside and i think the first thing you really see of earth is the fields isn't it as the ship kind of comes through yeah so it's earthy and very alive and krypton's very austere so they use that yeah i think the contrast between the the worlds is really really quite clearly done and very cleverly done visually um yeah.
1: And I think that that's something I, I speak to my creative writing students a lot about the fact that mm. um, variation in terms of setting can really help to keep the reader's attention. And I think it works in this in this movie mm. because you do, as you say, have sort of three separate backdrops, uh, three very contrasting mm. backdrops. And within those, even within those really contrasting uh, interiors, and exteriors, so in even when we get to metropolis there's the city streets and the hustle and bustle of that and then there's being up in the sky without anybody else there flying around there's only you and the Statue of Liberty so I think Um, something that writers do definitely need to think about when they're creating any story, but particularly perhaps when they're creating a story with larger than life characters, is to make those contrasts, uh, draw them uh, sort of really quite sharply to create variation for the reader and to really clearly distinguish between, for example, one world and another.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's interesting when you get to Metropolis, because I think you start off and kind of basically you're you're in heaven in the kind of the, the spheres you know you're in somewhere or other it's it's see the thing is it's not really a science fiction film it's kind of fantasy it's a science fan it's a sort of science fantasy sort of science romance type of there's not really any science fiction in it at all because it's you know it, they operate through crystals it's like that's the most woo woo thing going it's not hey um,
1: I like crystals well, yeah. well I'm saying you're but, right <laughs> yeah
0: exactly. of course you're
1: right I've never really thought about but it it's very that 70s way. as well isn't it it's really interesting. I'd, I'd sort of just latched onto the spaceship, but you're absolutely right. They're powered through crystals. It n- never it's occurred magic. to be, so. There's no
0: kind of like, what, how does any of it work? It's like, um, <laughs> it says you discovered the eternal void. So like, it's all very kind of, yeah, it's all very, it's sort of semi-Shakespearean as well. It's, it's got that kind of pseudo-Shakespearean, I should say. It's got that kind of thing going on. But I think you come to you come to Metro- uh, Smallville, sorry, it's very, it's all that kind of Norman Rockwell Andrew Wyeth, I think, was the other guy that's a big influence on the way they shot it. They shot it in Canada, didn't they? So, this is even though it's not America, the wheat fields and all the rest of it, it's got this very wide open spaces. It's done in a very kind of mythic way. Just as myth, the America of that is as mythic as the, the Krypton stuff. So, yeah. small town America. But I think the interesting thing is when you go to kind of metropolis, you're introduced on ground level in the back of a cab, I believe. I think that's the first shot, isn't it? I
1: think so.
0: Yeah, so you're kind of, it's not, you're not in the gods. You're not kind of like, you know, the, the, the language of it is that you're there and in amongst the people. And I think that's a really interesting thing. And there's not a lot of background actors. I mean, there's, it's like you look at, it's interesting, I think you look at it from the point of view of the way Richard Donner sort of directs it. And I think if you want to look at the success of this film, It's the way that Richard Donner sort of marshals the tone of the whole thing and also manages to get life into it. Because if you made a film that was the beginning on Krypton and a film that had the tone then of Smallville, it would be a flat tire of a film. The minute, and it's also interesting, is the thing about humor. There isn't a single joke in the film until you see Superman for the first time. When he comes back, he's in his full costume, he flies from the Fortress of Solitude. You cut to Metropolis and then it's like gag central for the next yeah. hour and a half. It's
1: almost <laughs> like humour did not exist before we reached the city. Well, no, but I
0: think that's a really interesting thing because what that does as well with the setting is that the, the fantasy is reality. They play the fantasy very straight. Both ter- f- forms of fantasy, small town America and kind of out space. Um, and then when you get to, The reality it's a total fantasy. It's a totally kind of, you know, sort of uh, fast talking, snappy sort of version of, you know, like a uh, Howard Hawks film from the 1940s or something like that sort of screwball comedy. But it's I think that's very interesting is that the humor in that allows you to kind of buy into this kind of ridiculous figure of Superman.
1: It's sort of interesting to think about uh, Mario uh, Puzo working on something like this, you know, given some of his other body of work, it's really interesting to think about that influence on the screenplay.
0: Well, I think it's, I think it depends who is, I mean, I I think Puzo's work on it was really the structure, wasn't it? The Kind of the shape of what is the first two films. Um, I would suspect the dialogue is pretty much all Tom Mankiewicz because, while Leslie and the interesting thing is, Leslie Newman and is it Robert Benton, Leslie Newman, and David Newman are quoted, I think, on the credited the other screenplay. They wrote the Camp 60s Superman musical for Broadway, which is, I guess, why they were given the job by, you know, um, and working with Robert Benton, which is why they're given the job by the, by the Salkines. But it's really Mankiewicz, because I think the other thing you can see very clearly by the time you get to, um, Metropolis and the rest of the film is the influence of James Bond because Mankiewicz wrote uh, Diamonds Are Forever. He wrote uh, Live and Let Die. He wrote Man um, with a Golden Gun. And I'm pretty sure he did uncredited script doctor in on both Spy I Love Me and Moonraker. So if you look at the, the humour in this, very, very similar. The way that, but particularly the way that they write Lex Luthor. And the way that Lex Luthor is kind of introduced is very, very similar to the way he does the villains in those, in the first two Bond films in particular, Diamonds of Forever and uh, uh, Live and Let Die. You've got like, you've got you've got the underground base, isn't he? And there's there's kind of the real world that's kind of inverted. So you've got all the fill our soul restaurants in Live and Let Die. And then you have the whole thing with Las Vegas and Blofeld in, in Diamonds of Forever. And he's, and, and, Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor is very much like Charles Gray's um, Blofeld. My favourite Blofeld. I'd say Diamonds of Forever is probably. I'm not saying it's the best Bond film. It's probably my favourite Bond film.
1: Well, and it's so interesting to draw comparisons between those two because they they both do have elements of um, action, obviously, and a villain that is sort of a supervillain. So I think mm-hmm. it's completely natural to draw from something like a Bond film, where the villains are larger than life to a certain amount, mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent. And I think you're right about um, Mario Puzo with the the sort of structural element and something that I noticed. And I've <laughs> it's sort of Obvious, really, again, it's just like really follows closely almost to the letter, um, like Todorov's theory of narrative. And if you're not familiar with that in the audience, I'll make sure it's linked to you in the show notes. But (laughs) just it's just it's just it's you do know it, everyone knows it. It's just that it's just the posh term for it. It's just you've got your equilibrium, Mm -hmm. and then you disrupt it. Mm -hmm. And essentially all the steps that in the story that go round. So you have the equilibrium on um on Krypton that's mm-hmm. then disrupted and then he gets sent off on this adventure and then what happens for that character is that by the end of it they create a new equilibrium and that's an a fairly traditional standard mode of storytelling mm-hmm. we could have been brought in in Smallville we could have been brought in in Metropolis but we weren't we were brought in mm-hmm. right at the beginning of that disruption just before it in fact uh, so it's a very traditional way of writing And it works for this film, Mm -hmm. I think, really, really well. I tend to now, writing for Mm -hmm. an audience that's got more of an understanding of filmic storytelling, Mm -hmm. I would normally cut to starting where the disruption happens. So you'd get a sense of what the equilibrium was Mm
0: -hmm.
1: by how the disruption affects the characters rather than showing the equilibrium first. There's so much interesting... um, almost backstory given in the opening of this movie really setting up the world around you know this strangely topical uh destruction of the planet that's going Mm -hmm. on the introduction of characters that we're not even going to see till the second movie that gets sent off Mm -hmm. to the phantom zone there's a lot of that and I think for this film it completely works but writing in 2021 I as a writer might be tempted to find another Mm -hmm. way on the page of of putting that together. Well, it's
0: interesting. I think this is interesting. I think this is always interesting. It's like hat on the page because it, it, the thing about Superman the movie, it's so much of it is just there's a lot of page. <laughs> <laughs> I think the script was like about 300 pages long or something for the f- two movies. I mean, like things like the ending of the first film was originally meant to be the ending of the second film, and they kind of lopped it off the end of. They didn't they had to stop make because they were filming the two films together back to back. And then they were never going to finish it. So they just decided to finish the first one first and get it out because it was already late. And they didn't have a particularly strong ending. They just had a tease for the sequel. So, what the, all that stuff with the nuclear. Well, the Earth turning the Earth backwards, that's what I was going to say, is that stuff was originally meant to be the end of the second film. And they just kind of moved it to the end of the first film. And it's so much better in the first film. It gives it all of that. It, it kind of sort of all that thing you must not interfere with human history and all that yeah. kind of stuff which obviously they'd have added in uh post-production i would thought to make the ending work um i think the thing with a movie i mean i think that's a thing with a movie a movie is a living thing i mean it kind of like your your your, your script is a is people say it's a blueprint it's more than that it's a foundation you you dig the foundations but it allows if it's a good script which this is it allows you to go off into other directions and i think also as well in terms of the performances i think one of the reasons why this is so tonally certain is because richard donner is a was an actor before he was a director you can see the actors completely trust him and what he's got a great radar for is what's phony so what he does if he's playing this the serious stuff on krypton it's serious if they're doing the kind of bucolic kind of myth on in smallville it, the the bobby socks you know and the, all that stuff it's it's truthful the stuff in metropolis is truthful you know when lex luther is being flamboyant that's truthful because he's wearing a wig you know it's all a performance and then when he turns you know that's truthful and that's a, so he's so you've got i think you've got he was building from a very good base but how they kind of manipulated that in the in the making and then in the post-production of the film i think is 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 a great sort of I mean, I think you can't overstate Richard Donner on it. I mean, I think Richard Donner's tone of this is perfect. And I think if you look at the subsequent films, they're never the the same. They never have that tone.
1: Yes, and that's something we'll come on to, definitely. Um, Mm. And I always encourage people, because some people will be writing scripts, uh, you know, listening to podcasts, and they'll be writing Mm. a script. And some people will be writing in a different form. But I think if you're writing as a novelist say or a short story Mm -hmm. writer I always try and get people to think about themselves as almost like the director of a movie Mm -hmm. when they're describing things on the page so where if if you imagine the point of view or perspective as a camera where are you going to focus the attention Mm -hmm. of the reader and so even looking at movies and scripts Mm -hmm. is a really good way of learning how to write prose in fact a lot of the best lessons I've Mm -hmm. ever learned about writing novels has come from screenplays and so somebody like Donna who's like a really you know impressive presence mm-hmm. on a project like this can be almost a masterclass in knowing you know where to where to direct the readers or the audience's attention at particular times mm. so just moving on to characterization uh because I have to you know I'll hold my hands up and say I'm completely in love with um, the two central well, I suppose what would be classed as the two central characters in this story um, Lois and, Clark. and their performances, Lois and Clark, but, you know, particular mm. performances uh, by Reeve and Kidder, just completely. I saw it at a very young age and I just absolutely mm. wanted to be her and adored him and have since. Mm. And I just feel like since I've grown older, I've learned about the chemistry they had as friends and how they like looked out for each mm. other or, you know, how their relationship developed. And I feel like some of that chemistry comes across, but some of it is... Through the writing as well. So, what, which, how do you, when you've got a character like Superman and Lois Lane, mm-hmm. how do you decide which elements of that characterization to bring forward, and and make sure you serve the viewer? Do you think?
0: Well, I've written both characters, never in the same scene. I have to say, I've written Lois Lane in, when I wrote Supergirl for DC, probably about ten years ago. I had her in it quite a bit. She's a great character, Lois Lane. She's a really good character to write. I wrote Superman. I've written Superman, you know, Justice League. Only the once in a Justice League comic I did for DC, and Superman's very difficult because he's you. The thing with Superman is about creating obstacles for him. You kind of and you, and it's about you don't want him to kind of um, you, you know you've it's about delaying the use of his power, the use of his power. That's one of the great things about the second Superman film is he loses his powers. So for a large chunk of the film, it's It's that. And I think in the first film in this, he's kind of he's learning about himself and his powers. So he isn't really like the fully embodied Superman. He isn't really that until the end of the second film when he comes back and he's been he's been purged of such human failings. And uh, he stops, you know, generals all the rest of them. So I think there's I think he's very he's really hard to write. I think he's really hard to write. Clark Kent isn't hard to write. You know, you can, you're kind of, um, but it's difficult to write Clark Kent and make him nice because at the end of the day, he's always lying. Everyone says, you know, I never lie. Superman's whole life is a lie. Mm. The, what so he's projecting. So, so you kind of have to sort of get the tone right with them. I think they get it perfectly right in this because it's romance. It's romantic comedy. It's, it's light, But it's also very, very, it's, there's a lot of adult subtext to it as well. So, like you have the sort of sequence where that, I mean, she's great. I think there's she's never, Lois Lane has never been better cast than Margot Kidder. No, people talk about Superman being perfectly cast with Christopher Eve, which he is. He's magnificent in the way that, you know, Sean Connery is Bond in everyone's mind. Christopher Reeve will always be Superman. Um, she has, Lois Lane has never been better than Margot Kidder. And I think what they get absolutely right, and which is what, what you listen to the, what Donna talking about it while they cast her, is she kind of fell into the room. And was all over the place. And he had to kind of teach her to kind of be a bit more sort of <laughs> refined, which she isn't at all, <laughs> but she's totally human. And you completely buy why Superman would love her because she's, she's everything that he's not. She's chain smoking. She's, you know, she's, you know, she's, can't
1: she's, you she can't
0: spell. <laughs> Which <laughs> yeah. I
1: love that, you know, it, it's, it's like, Yeah, for a journalist, it, I, I love it because it's just like, I'm not going to let a little thing like spelling hold me back. Well, I it's alive.
0: It's alive. I think that's the thing about it. It's alive. She's alive as a character. She is, she is exploding with, you know, things all the time as a character she's like a ball of energy and she's and superman he's always kind of restrained because superman has to restrain himself because he's he'd kind of knock you over and kill you you know so so there's an element of restraint with him that she's completely you know over the top all the time and between that and she's so he's so big she's so you know she's so small there's this kind of weird sort of alchemy that's there but it's never been as good in any other kind of incarnation I suppose Terry Hatcher kind of played Margot Kidder when she did the Lois and Clark thing on TV, and that might be the best version outside of this one of Lois Lane on on screen. We actually Um, did
1: revisit the whole of Smallville (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't want to some do time that. ago. But actually, I really thought that actress did a really great job, and of course, her name. She's all right, basically. actually. She's like,
0: she's good
1: because uh, taking on a role like that when it's such an iconic role, and I yeah. think it takes you a little while to warm to her after being such a fan. <clears> but actually, by the end of the series, you're like, you know, she did really great considering the yeah. all everything that was attached to that role when she took it on. But I agree that I think when you have a. Um, an admiration for that 1978 film. That those those characters definitely, um, you know sort of almost the epitome uh, of those characters.
0: Well, and also, but you believe it's like the scene on the rooftop, you believe them. It's like when he meets her, she's in her like negligee and he doesn't need to use his x-ray vision because he can see what's there. <laughs> what's yeah, there and, anyway? and
1: she's, I love that because there's the, it's sort of the element of fantasy that you were talking about yeah. earlier. She says something on the lines of, well, Clark says that you're like Peter Pan and she's stood there in this basically adult yeah. Wendy Darling outfit yeah. you know, about to jump off a roof and well, fly.
0: And there's all that stuff <laughs> as well isn't there there's there's things about dreams about flying in, encoded in you know dreams about sex mm,
1: you know, so yeah
0: they they, they 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 have sex together that's that's basically what happens in that secret.
1: absolutely yeah and, after talking about what color her underwear is yeah
0: and, and, <laughs> oh, no she actually says something was so that she says she says before do you eat
1: yeah, yeah. Well, she takes a long time to say eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you?
0: <laughs> and then
1: yeah, we. So we have all that subtext going on. So I think that's a really interesting way of of thinking about framing those more adult themes within um, mm. the superhero context. But it's also interesting what you say about Superman being difficult to write, because I think with any kind of magic or superpower, mm-hmm. it actually it's it's limitations that
0: Absolutely. allow you to write
1: con- conflict. It's not what someone can do. It's what they can't do. Um, mm. So in the second movie, for example, where he loses all these powers, all of a sudden he's unable to do all these things, and that's what causes the conflict. If, yeah. if he could go around all the time doing anything, anytime, and just magically always get there, etc. For example, in the first one, at the end, it's really a race against time. You know, he, you know mm. that's where the conflict lies. That he's got limitations, and then he decides to obviously reverse time
0: yeah. um
1: so I think there's the limitations that really make a character that, and you totally nailed what's going on with Lois Lane she's so full of life and yeah. he's so restrained and again it's that contrast and so people writing uh, people listeners writing characters two characters that are going to go together again mm. it's this element of contrast that's going to bring the uh, spark I think mm. for a lot of the time, um, when you're writing two characters that are either romantically involved or involved in an intense friendship, or each other's sidekick, or whatever it might be, um, the conflict—sorry, uh, the, the conflict—tends to come from there, and the spark comes from there. Contrast.
0: Well, in, in in their case, they are all of those things.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why, which is lovely. Not, yeah. yeah, which is lovely. Well, that it embodies so much, and it's just not one thing. Um, and so, the, the, we'll move on slightly to theme because I think there's some really interesting themes in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, We have the introduction where jor and his wife having this conversation about he's going to send him to Earth, and there's a slight Mm -hmm. disagreement between them. You know, she's talking about all the emotional impacts of sending him to Earth, about him being different, about him, you know, never being able to connect with anyone, and he's talking about all the physical benefits so he'll be stronger than anyone else he'll need that advantage (laughs) etc and so there's sort of a a really core conflict set up in that opening sequence about um physical strength versus emotional strength which I think is a huge theme running all the way through this Mm -hmm. I wonder what you thought about other themes perhaps that were brought to the fore and work really well
0: well, I think it's the. I think it's the. You can't sort of look at Superman without the the immigrant myth, the immigrant fantasy, and it's a Jewish immigrant myth. If you go back to Siegel and Shuster, it's there. It's Mo, he's Moses. You know, in the boy, they, they always make the point of saying about about Superman being Jesus. He's not. He's actually it's Moses. the story is Moses. It's kind of a bit of Hercules as well, isn't it? He's kind of cast down, but it's you know you look at it. He's put in. The rocket, and he's sent down the river, and he's found by the. I think even you know, take the house of El, you know, Jarrell. Yeah. It's all very. It, it draw, it's drawing from that, so I think it's interesting. You've got kind of the you've got a kind of, Jarrell is very much the kind of um, he's the kind of biblical father, isn't he? And then you've got which give who's given him the law. And then you've got, Jonathan, who is giving him. The, the heart, yeah, definitely. the moral code. So, so, so Jarell says you must do this, you mustn't do that, and there's all this information and encoded in, in this is this, and you mustn't do this. And I think that's I think that's it. There's that it's there's, there's the two mothers obviously as well, but there's also the two fathers. And I think the thing with Superman as well is it's everyone says it's an origin story, it's not. It's a rites of passage story because Superman doesn't have an origin really. He's Born as Superman. So where and he ends that's up. That's why I enjoy
1: it more than most superhero movies. Yeah, well, I'm well, not a big only, fan of origin movies. There's only two said. good
0: origin movies. The two superheroes that have got the best origin stories are super, are Batman and Spider-Man. Batman has the perfect one. As a child, his parents are killed before him, and he dedicates his life to making sure that never happens again. Spider-Man, if you look at Spider-Man, Spider-Man's story is Batman and Superman mushed together.
1: Absolutely. Uncle Ben
0: is killed. You know, he he even has all these elements of the Superman story woven into him. You know, he's got the she won't understand, she doesn't believe they can't really see what I'm really like underneath it. Um, There is the great power, great responsibility. There's an element of Superman there. He works at a newspaper. There's all that kind of, he's a more proletarian version of that. But it takes those two kind of origin stories and mushes them together and you get Spider-Man. And I don't really think anyone else has got one that's it's certainly not as emotive. I mean, I think, but also as well, there's the kind of thing about loss. I think that's the thing about Superman. He loses something he'll never have. With, and he's, and the thing with this as well, it's he loses his, his real father. He loses his connection to the farm, really. He, by, by sort of learning who you are, you can never go home again.
1: And that's, so, those are, these are really core, like fundamental themes yeah, yeah. Um, about people's identity and their place in the world. You know, who yeah. am I? Uh, what's my place in this world? Um, why am I here? These are all, you know, fundamental questions, particularly. Well, I've you know, always thought the these...
0: reason Superman's harder to write is because Superman's a much more complicated and more adult character. Hmm. If you deal with Bat- Batman, the reason why Batman, loads of people can play Batman, loads of people can write Batman is that it's like james bond it's a plastic fantasy it's male it's a it's boy it's a boyhood fantasy it's male kind of it's untrammeled masculine masculine kind of boy fantasy i mean take batman he doesn't even have to do his own laundry does he i mean he's got an endless supply of money he's got no women around to kind of really annoy him during the day he's got this butler that kind of tidies up after him he gets to play with his toys all day at night go out and have some fights and then he gets to hang out with like women dressed as cats or whatever you know and it's total it's a total fantasy there isn't anything really kind of um, I think one of the things when you when you adapt Batman to the screen I think that's one of the things that Christopher Nolan did really well is to make Batman a much more sympathetic character because I don't think by nature he is a particularly he's, re- he's you know
1: hard to identify with someone has that much money even if they have lost the parents tragically with with Superman
0: is Superman's a guy who he comes from he comes from somewhere else he's adopted he finds his place in the kind of working people of America and then he becomes a different type of working person Mm. but has to kind of hide who he is as well to assimilate into the broader culture and there's a price to be paid for that
1: yeah, and I think from a writing perspective as well, it's you need to um, question whether or not you are uh, looking for relatable, a relatable character um, and a relatable theme at the core of what Mm. you're doing, or like you've just said with sort of the Batman narratives, you're going for something that is more pure escapist and fantasy uh, and and sort of decided, picking a lane between those two will often help you with with tone. Um, So we should like this on to the next question about how the dramatic and comedic elements blended in this film and you sort of touched on this already Mm -hmm. but i don't think that the later movies beyond two really get the tone down it's not that they seem to have conflicting ideas of what the tone should be as the film progresses and so it can feel a bit patchy um whereas actually even though you're right that there isn't really any jokes before they get to metropolis i don't feel the same lurch in this film
0: no at all well, I think the thing is, I think the, the fundamental, I mean, the, the story obviously is Richard Richard Donner is, films 75% of Superman 2 before they stop filming it. Um, they finish Superman 1, he's due to come back to finish it, and he's they fire him, don't they, basically? And they replace him with Richard Lester. And Richard Lester is a, is a very talented filmmaker, you know, you look at the, the Musketeer movies, you look at stuff he did Flashman, look at the Beatles films in the 60s, The Knack and all those kind of, you know, he's a serious filmmaker, but he's a totally different filmmaker. His whole thing is based on quirk and it's based on, there's an element of cynicism in there. And there's elements of that. I mean, I think those things are there in Superman too, but they can't really, un, they're building around a film that was mainly finished. Like all the scenes with uh, Gene Hackman were filmed by Richard Donner. Nothing with Richard with Jane Hackman is filmed by Richard Lester. Um, so there, but there's stuff like all the stuff at the honeymoon getaway in Superman Two is was filmed later and written like not written by Tom Mankiewicz. It was brought in by the Newman, the guys that worked, the people who would worked on the, the musical in the sixties. There's a cynical kind of, um, there's a, it's slightly shrill. And and it's kind of kind of caricatured, like small town America in that. And I think you find it even more that creative team is then given carte blanche to do Superman three, and Superman three is just like totally wildly inappropriately all over the place. You know, there are you know the humor's wrong. It's kind of it's Superman's a drunk. You know, at certain points, and he's hitting onto you know Pamela Pamela Perin so what we're talking about? Pamela Stevenson, on top of the other <laughs>
1: Pamela, uh, the other Pamela,
0: <laughs> the other blonde Pamela. Um, on top of the Statue of Liberty, I think, isn't it? In that. And then Superman smashing up, you know, bottles and, you know, all it's it's just all it's the thing, I think the fundamental thing is that Richard Donner believes in Superman. Yeah. And he believes that it's it's a it's a it's a it's a worthwhile American myth. He is not slumming it. He believes in the story that he's telling. He believes that the character has well. And I think you have to place it within the context of the time as well. In nineteen seventy eight, you are what, four years away from Watergate, Vietnam, and the kind of fallout of that has only just ended, you know, mid 70s. You're, you're talking about Woodward and Bernstein have been the people who have broken it. So to be a journalist is a great thing. Then, your you, truth, justice in American way, a journalist is that. Superman is someone who has returned from the 1940s, basically, even down to the way that they dress Christopher Reeves, Clark Kent. And Superman is a character from that innocent time, transplanted into that 1970s 70s world, and all of the cynicism and nastiness is embodied in Lex Luthor.
1: And I think there's so many lessons to be learned from everything you mm. just said there when we're actually writing sort of stories for ourselves. So first thing, if you don't believe in what you're doing, Mm. I think it's wholly apparent to the reader. They will, I don't know exactly how, they do seem to have some kind of spidey sense where they just know Mm. that something isn't gelling here, that you don't really believe in this project. Mm. So I really think that writers, I know it's difficult because writers at the end of the day are employees as well as as creative people. And we all have, um, sometimes we have contracts to fulfill um, but as much as possible to believe in those characters and to, and to believe in that world and really go for it in order to create something that feels real to the people reading it or, fe- or feels escapist, whatever you're going for. Mm. But also having a clear creative vision, i.e. Yeah. how do I want the reader or the viewer to feel as they watch this? Because what's happened with this particular franchise is you've had a mix of people coming in to take the helm and that's left... Been left it with a very uneven end. So it's like lots of different influences, yeah. and people are just, well, you know, by the time you get to the third movie, great for internet gifts, but mm-hmm. not for much else. Um, because well, it's, not it's just Superman all over then. the shop. You know, sorry?
0: It's not mentioned Superman 4.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, so there's all kinds of things going on there, and it's partly because there's such a mix of influence. Whereas if you are trying to create something, especially in a complicated world in which perhaps there's some element of fantasy, magical realism, superpower, a mythology to uphold. It's really important to have a a clear creative vision. And although that might change a little bit over the course of a series, say, uh, just being really clear about what what it is you want people to feel throughout and be aware that if you do dramatically shift away from that, you're going to lose some people
0: hmm yeah no I think that's right I think I think also that I think superheroes full stop are very difficult to do outside of a comic book where you're doing an ongoing kind of narrative even then I think you you know there's there are very few really great extended runs on comic books really for very long I mean there are, there are some but not c- compared to how many comics are actually published not that many mm, <laughs> um, really
1: interesting
0: but I think that you it's hard to do stories with these characters over a a long period of time i mean what can you do i mean i mean James bond's the obvious one that you just don't really have any continuity from it from film to film you just sort of put him in an adventure and that's it and go off and have it yeah. audiences don't want really want that now i mean and look at the way james bond has been reconfigured to kind of make it a kind of cumulative effect event, you know over the course of the daniel craig films that's been the case um but, it's, you know, it's very difficult with Superman. I think, I think that's been a problem with Superman in when they've tried to revive Superman as well on, on screen. I mean, Superman Returns is a very interesting film school exercise in trying to deconstruct Superman. But it doesn't work in this as a living, breathing experience because it's all, it's all too precious. And then, I mean, I've got more time. I think Man of Steel is interesting they can't even bring themselves to call it Superman. They're so, you know, they're so sort of like embarrassed of the, you know, it's not Superman. It's a first contact alien film and all the rest of it. Um, Even though it's Superman movie mixed with Superman two (laughs) together with a heavy dose of like, um, I don't know, Transformers (laughs) at the end as well. But even then, you know, I kind of, there's, you, you don't really get that they believe in Superman and there is something super simple and magical about the character, which is, you know, if you go into those areas that are more serious, quote unquote, then you break the fantasy. I it wouldn't mind
1: so much, but my big problem with those movies where they do go serious with it is it just always dissolves into a 20-minute CGI punch fest. And that, to me, is well, right, not yeah. particularly compelling. And but it's not I, very serious
0: as well. That's the whole thing. It's actually more ridiculous.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I often say this again to my students. I say, you know, the thing about action is if you're not careful it's really boring because all you're doing is describing a fist meeting a face or a uh, you Mm. know a foot uh kicking some uh, Mm. object and what we really need is to blend intellectual and emotional content through that fight scene Mm -hmm. otherwise it's just it's just a description of one Mm. person's fist meeting something Mm. for a whole page and that's not engage not as engaging as it could be and that's what happens with these movies this is just punch 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 and nothing in between no dialogue no um you know sense of perhaps jeopardy creeping in someone's getting tired and emotional and they can't really deal with the fight. it just goes on for so long before any of that is even introduced and I think that that's something that the first movies back in 1978 onwards at least managed to avoid to a certain extent they made a, a you know an interesting challenge for him to overcome at the end of the movie and there wasn't just 20 minutes of of you know fighting for well they no they techni-
0: technologically they couldn't do it then as well i think, yeah. well, I, think I mean i think yeah. <laughs> so i think you've got you've got a kind of issue there with they couldn't do that stuff but you, and i'm they, pleased they, they, yeah, yeah, But they do the two different things. I mean, it's interesting. They do, you know, the first film, you do the classic thing, which is that you don't it's not about Superman punching anyone, it's the Superman, you put Superman in the in the middle of a thing where he's trying to save people, mm. but can he actually save everybody in time, even Superman, which is a kind of which is a great way to do it. And obviously you've set it up in the first one for the second one, you've got three super villains that he's gonna that are all as powerful as Superman and the human being and again he's trying to protect the people, they say, don't they, it? He cares. Mm. That's what the villains say at the end, uh, was odd to Ursa. He cares, he actually cares about these people, and that's where they start to turn the tide rather than punching each other. It becomes they start to hurt the people that put the citizens of Metropolis. Um, whereas in, um, you know, Man of Steel, they're just you know, they're just collateral damage, aren't they? I mean, you, there's a thing yes. you say, I mean, that's that, I mean, that's not really Superman, that's Miracle Man. I don't know if you've ever read Alan Moore's Miracle Man, but the um. Marvel Man it was originally called but the end of that is basically the final it's not the final issue it's one of the last few issues you have a superhero battle between Miracle Man and Kid Miracle Man who've both got the same power it's kind of like Zod and Superman and everybody is kind of the city is destroyed laid waste people's limbs are torn off you know it's like Hiroshima which is like that there and Moore's kind of take on that is really interesting and the way it's done. And then the story afterwards, which is like how they rebuild society from that kind of point is really interesting. And that's also, they kind of did that big smash up thing. They ripped it off for the end of the third Matrix movie where they have the big fight, but there's no people in the city because they're all just Agent Smith. So it doesn't really matter. Um, So it's just, it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) And that's the thing. It's like
1: actually, you know, just shoving it in for the sake of, 10 minutes in the hmm. story is not the way to do violence any more than it is to do but sex. Story, so it's just story has w- to aware s- of that.
0: The story has to support the spectacle. That's the crucial thing. If the story doesn't support the spectacle, then the, then, the, then, the, then the spectacle is nothing. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of it as a movie, but I think the end of the Avengers, the first Avengers film, works very, very well because you've set up all the characters before then. And it's about them kind of working together to avert this thing. So actually, that's a very well done piece of engineering to have this big kind of giant sort of epic city-wide scale. If you go to the end of like, say, The Dark Knight Rises, where you've got a big city-wide kind of thing, there's people trying to get off the island. There's people, you know, they're fighting on the, the steps of Wall Street. Someone else is trying to stop a bomb from going off. But all of that set up as well. You know, you look at that, that's a very well articulated and very the geography of that is very well defined. If you then, if you look at like, to so the end of, Man of Steel, it's just two CGI creatures mm-hmm. tearing buildings down. And it's like, so what?
1: So just foreshadowing and, and like you say, building, using the narrative to support the spectacle.
0: But Superman 2 as well is interesting because the end of, we're talking about Superman 2, not Superman, but Superman 2 is inter- interesting is that the big battle is not the end. Yeah. That's kind of, they then have the the, the kind of, the kind of character battle happens back in the ruins of Krypton,
1: absolutely. you know, Yeah. And so I, <laughs> I think it's kind of impossible to think, talk about one without at least referencing the other because of the yeah, way it yeah. was shot and the way put together, but you're absolutely right. And then, so thinking about what the climax of the story is, it's a slightly different climax uh, to what we would perhaps have now. And I think this is all really like useful and interesting, but just to sort of round off, because um, I really feel like this, film blends a range of different genres Mm. almost seamlessly Um, so you've got the either fantasy or science Mm. fiction depending on how you see it the romance the adventure the almost family drama of it as well Mm -hmm. Um, and I know you write a lot of different um, superhero and and, and, you know other comic book characters Uh, do you have any tips for writers on how to blend because it is such a mishmash sometimes of quite a few different elements
0: um oh, how do you do that i mean i think you've got to be very, you've got to be very careful of what your depends if it's your own thing or if it's a, a company sort of own character i mean it's different it, it, those are very different things um and what you what type of version of those characters are you writing i mean if you're writing superman i mean i think if you don't have humor in it and you don't have um character dynamics you're probably not writing superman you know there's you know, he's got all these characters, whether that's the characters of the Daily Planet, whether that's Lois Lane, whether that's the kind of something to do with Krypton, whether he's going back to small. You know, I think, I, think, I mean, I think in terms of superhero, I think the block, I think Superman is not unique in this. I think it maybe does it better than some of the other films. But if you look at the trajectory of, of the blockbuster over three films, before, I mean, I think 75, you've got Jaws. If you look at Jaws as a film, Yours is people say oh it's just about a shark you know attacking an island and, and eating people it's a horror movie it's not that at all it's you know you've got a blend of a disaster movie because it's a typical kind of 70s you know disaster movie There, you've got a kind of it, there's an element of the exorcist as well in there in, in terms of the horror thing which is like the the evil coming to a small kind of community but then you've also got an adventure film second half of that film the last third of that film is an adventure film they want the high seas you listen to the music it's john williams's score there it's like moby dick or it's that it's so that blends things together star wars in 77 does the same i mean star wars is a is a blend of comedy and you know it's a blend of a western it's a kind of it's almost like a foreign language film when you dropped in the middle of it like a sort of um the the hidden fortress that it's kind of ripping off of that the way it's opening the film it come in through r2d2 and c3po is very very much like that and then it becomes a damn busters and then it's a kind of or then it becomes a fairy story you know it's it's all of these things superman um maybe does it with a bit more grace it's got a bit more kind of it's got it, its tone is much more um it, 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 it maybe less frenetic less jarring i don't know i mean
1: I think also it gives itself permission to change tone very early on. So we have the yes. opening in Krypton, which doesn't last very long. It's, it's a very short minutes, segment yeah, and yeah. it's a very specific tone. And then it's, it's almost like the signal of moving to the, the new setting allows it to shift in tone. And then so then by the time we get to Metropolis, we expect a mm-hmm. shift in tone because it's already happened from Krypton to... Well, they're
0: like different movies, aren't they? I mean, I think it's yeah. like beginning is, you, you can see that Jeffrey Unsworth shot 2001. You know when he when, when they do that, it's got that kind of element to it. Um, you go to the to the stuff in Smallville; it could be a it's there's a little bit of rebel without cause in there and and that as well in the color scheme and the way I think even the way Clark's dressed, he's dressed like a James Dean in that, isn't he? Um, but you've got um, yeah, and then by the time you get to the by the time you get to the um, Metropolis, you're in a kind of much more sort of handheld sort of normal urban kind of environment. But you're right. It kind of it has very clear sort of lines of markation, Whereas I think the other films, they don't. But I think that, that I think that's a thing of the blockbuster. I think the thing of the blockbuster is it is ne- it should never be one thing. If you look at successful blockbusters, they're not. They've always kind of playing. What's Ghostbusters? I mean, it's a comedy. It's kind of a weird science fiction film. It's a weird horror movie. It's kind of got. A, it's it's a romance. It's kind of like a it's a satire on New York. It's like it's all of these things. It's Back to the futures yeah. you know a lot of different things you know
1: and i think in all those films and it is present in superman
0: mm. they not
1: only give themselves permission by you know starting with this really short segment and then completely changing where mm-hmm. we are but they foreshadow it so um his parents talk a lot about how different things are going to be on earth for mm. quite some time <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before yeah. they
1: send him off, and yeah. then when we get to Smallville, there is a sense that he's going off somewhere that is—we don't know exactly where he's going. We do know because we know the mythology of the of the carriage, yeah. but you know, technically speaking, we don't know exactly where he's going. Um, you know, Metropolis was kind of foreshadowed in the beginning, so we know he's going to end up there. But we know that is going to be very different to his life on the farm, which again gives themselves gives the the makers and the writers permission to completely change the tone on us again because they set it up. They're like, "We're going somewhere different now." Yeah, uh, And they kind of really flag that almost, but it's not heavy-handed. It's just through the conversations that the characters have with each other, you start to understand that this central character who we follow from being a baby to going into Metropolis as an adult um, is going to go through a number of phases. And that's really, I think, how it ties together is the rite of passage that you were talking about. And well, they're different know,
0: actors. They're understanding,
1: different yeah.
0: They're so totally changing different, different colours. I mean, you know, Jarrell is probably the only character who kind of appears in all three parts of the film isn't he i mean he appears in the fortress of Solitude, then he kind of disappears a bit but you know he's he, he he can't but he's a ghost so the fortress of solitude is kind of this sort of in-between place that superman goes to where he can kind of hang out with. which is kind of very it part of the comics as well it's kind of it's a dead. it's you know i think that's what um general zod says isn't it in the second one, he goes there and he goes it's dusty replica or something like that it's sort of, some silly thing he says but um, but that's it I mean it's a kind of it's a place it's you know he's he's, a re, he's like Miss Havisham when he goes back to uh, the Fortress of Solitude you know there's a fro a world that no longer exists it's frozen at a moment you know and it's not it's not that it, it, so I think Superman I mean yes I think it's right I think it but it does give you the kind of the first film the first part of the film has got a completely different cast a totally sealed cast the middle part of that smallville part is a totally sealed kind of thing and then the rest of the film is a different film it's like i mean there's a i wonder if there's a bit there's an element of kubrick in there as well because he's obviously the big filmmaker of that period and he always talked about film stories being what eight submersible units wasn't it the f- eight chunks of things of story that you kind of they don't have to they connect to each other in a don't have to connect to each other like deliberately they they might the the connections might be obtuse. I mean, 2001 is a very good example of that. Um, But together you make a film and in those eight sections, you have like a movement, which is almost like a movie within itself. I mean, you can apply that to kind of a lot of films you make, you know, the shine and all those kinds of things. Um, But then together there's a cumulative effect. I mean, I think I'm not saying Superman's that, but I do think there's an element of that in there. I think there's an influence of that. And certainly in that beginning sections is that they are very much kind of you could show that Smallville piece on its own and have an experience with that piece and you could do the same with the with the the Krypton bit
1: yeah I think there's just an arc isn't there between each one Hmm. the polarity changes from one place Mm -hmm. from a sort of well, in the, in the case of Krypton, a positive, a more positive place to a negative place in the the, the planet then yep. discrooks. and and the same goes for you know he, he finds a new life in Smallville, and then he has to leave. Um, and, you know, then we move on to that. But I think what you say about cast is interesting from a writer's point of view as well, because often when we create characters as writers really. in, in prose, we're quite keen to stick with those characters and that supporting cast all the way through. Whereas if you are writing something that blends a few genres, it it could be useful to think about it in phases and having a different cast of characters surrounding the central character on each phase of the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've always got them to go back to like we do with Jorel. you know, you've always got the opportunity if you want to, to go back to those characters, if it serves the story, but to uh, kind of signify that you're moving on to a new phase or a new tone or a new uh, genre. Is is a really interesting idea to sort of mix up the characters. Well, I think we've given people lots to think about here. <laughs> and that's obviously the uh, the aim. So thank you yeah. so much for all that, James. That's all right. It's been no really worries. fantastic. It's so fascinating. And uh, I really appreciate uh, all your insights.
0: Well, it's been fun to revisit it, And thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed that interview and found it useful. Superman is a bit of a cultural touchstone for me, so I don't think I could ever tire of talking about it. In terms of writing questions that came out of that discussion, however, here are a few to consider. Number one, what are the different phases or acts of your story and how might you use something like setting to transition between them? Two, how will you make your superhero relatable? What human qualities do they possess or human dilemmas do they face that will help the audience connect with them? Three, how will you create contrast between your supporting characters and your superheroes? Something that will make the characters spark and keep their interactions interesting in the same way they are between Superman and Lois in this movie. Four, how many different genres are you blending within your superhero story? Romance, action, coming of age or young adult? What proportion of the story should you give to each element? Which one dominates and why? And five, how will you ensure moments of action have an emotional core to them that helps the reader understand the stakes? That's it for this episode. Join me next time for an interview with award-winning young adult author Sophie McKenzie on how to write teen fiction. I'll see you next time.
0: Genre Rama The podcast for fiction writers It's Genre Rama Romance, monsters, quests, and fighters It's Genre Rama